When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're alive. Let's get started. A reading from Revelation. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, to kill a third of humankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This vision that John has, the plague, the monstrous monstrous locusts, the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, all of these scary things happening at once. Four angels who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. A 200 million army of cavalry So, riding horses. This is how he saw it in his vision. We have the colors of their armor. These amazing details. Dreams are really weird, if you ever had them. Some people don't. Um, Some people do. Some people remember things like colors. Some people dream in black and white. Some people dream in English. Some people dream in silence. Um, dreams are really weird things and visions though are literally more visual than dreams are if you know what I mean and I don't know if I know what I mean by that very few people mistake a dream for a vision but no one mistakes a vision for a dream that's C.S. Lewis I think that sometimes we just know what we're seeing. And John's vision comes at a time of great deprivation in his life, a time where he's longing for the community that he has been exiled from on the Lord's Day. And so this vision of this cavalry, 200 million in number, pretty serious stuff. And... It is in these moments that we start to lose hope when the armies of the world seem to be the only thing making the news. If it bleeds, it leads, 
as they say in journalism. Articles with bloodshed and violence in them are always more prominent in people's imagination and readership than articles about the new puppy adoption center that's opening or something like that. Um, And that's normal that we are more tuned in to threats in our world, even threats that are so remotely impossible from happening to us. Statistically speaking, we are definitely more interested in them than uh, stories that have a lot of good news in them, our natural self-preservation and curiosity. And then these, um, these three plagues kill another third of humankind. These thirds are being killed. Um, we know about plagues, don't we? We know about um, this kind of thing. The, the word plague is a very loose uh, word in Greek for a lot of things that are bad, not just disease, not just viruses. Um, the world that Jesus lived in and the world that John is writing in, this world of the first century, was a world that was starting to have more and more plagues, more and more viral and bacteriological diseases. There's some great books that have come out in the last couple of years on the Roman world and disease um, with the thesis that it was, it was germs, not Germans, who ended the Roman Empire. It was not the invasion of the barbarians, but ultimately uh, plagues and pandemics that could not be stopped. The first century doesn't have any pandemics by a pandemic standard. That starts in the Antonine era couple hundred years later, maybe 150, 60, 70 years later. But there were certainly diseases that swept through and infected a large number of people unexplainably, invisibly. But the aftermath would have been extremely devastating. It is the connectional nature of the Roman world that gives it the possibility for great disease happening. The more trade, the more travels, the more soldiers that travel from one place to the other, the more likely disease is spread. That's why the main mitigation of the disease, as we all experienced, was to not do anything and not go anywhere. This was pretty normal for most of human history, but we had a pretty, pretty big break um, from about, depending on how you count it, 1920s to the present era, almost 100 years um, of not having these major restrictions placed on on us as Americans. Other parts of the world have had plague outbreaks and quarantines and things like that. Reading the records of the early bishops of Texas, many of them put in their journals and diaries that they arrived in New Orleans and had to wait two weeks to get on the train because there was a yellow fever outbreak and they would stop all the trains when that would happen um, into Texas or out of Texas to try to mitigate the spread of that disease. And later they found out it was a vector-borne disease. Mosquitoes were carrying it from one person to the other. But these were all attempts to to, um, stop the spread of that. But plague here, I think, has more to do with um, not a viral disease, but the scourge of this violence and the locusts. We talk about a plague of locusts. It's more like the word for Um, the 10 plagues of Egypt, which were not necessarily diseases, the way we think of them, but were judgments that came down from on high. 
In fact, there's a lot of parallels between the ten plagues of Egypt and the book of Revelation, that God is trying to send a message. And this, all this unleashing of these plagues is all for one point, and the point is at the end of this chapter, um, that people are being called to repent of their worshiping of demons and idols, of gold and silver, bronze and stones and wood, that cannot hear or see or walk. Um, this is the theme of all the prophets in the Old Testament. They all mock the idols and say, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't walk, so why, why do you worship them? Why do you bow down to them? Why do you ascribe some sort of uh, divine favor from them? Why do you want their help? Um, and we are always tempted with idol worship as Christians, always tempted to put something in place of the invisible God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Um, for Christians, it's a little more complex as we do have an image of the invisible God, an icon. It's the Greek word for image of the invisible God, not an idol, although linguistically you might be able to do that with Jesus. He looks like God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. That's the Christian answer. Jesus himself said that. If you've seen me, he says, you've seen the Father. And this um, does allow for us to, to consider, and for Catholic Christians like Episcopalians are in the Catholic tradition of the first ecumenical councils, we say the Council of Chalcedon made it very clear that you can make a picture of Jesus and you can't worship it, but you can um, give reverence to it because Jesus, um, through that we can see Jesus a little more clearly because he is a man in heaven that looks like a man in heaven, whatever that looks like. Um, and so the Christians have always kind of wrestled with that. Over the years, we've had iconoclastic controversies where people got rid of all the pictures of Jesus in violent ways. The, Amer the Reformation in England and Europe in 500 years ago certainly got rid of most of the statues of Jesus and pictures of Jesus that had been created over time. Some of the paintings survived. Some other things survived. But there are numerous charred, um, burned remains of saints' images and images of Jesus that archaeologists discover from that time period and some, somehow find. But a lot of that was destroyed because this constant concern of making idols, and maybe that's a good thing, that we should be vigilant for the idols in our life. We kind of use this term anachronistically now to talk about money or fame or success or anything that we put in the place of God, anything that demands that ultimate allegiance of us. Um, that is what this book is talking about. And then he says that they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. So here we have these four things, murders, sorceries, fornication, and their thefts. Um, murder is pretty clear. But when we read it in the context of chapter 9, we're talking more than just people murdering because they're angry or they want to steal something, but maybe a more systemic kind of uh, official murder that's being done. 
by these 200 million cavalry troops and the locusts that seem to have some kind of human dimension to them. They have human faces. Um, you know, many have speculated those, those flying locusts with the stingers are helicopters because they do have a human face on them. I don't know. You can l- let your imagination work through that yourself. But war is a kind of murder. Even though we say it's often morally justifiable to do in self-defense, um, the killing of other human beings is definitely against the way God set up humanity to function in harmony with each other and with God. Sorceries, um, this word for sorcery, pharmacia, pharmacy, drugs, um, we see in our age the dangers of people having drugs slipped into their drinks um, and probably one of the worst kinds of um, crimes that we can think of in our world, an unsuspecting victim being drugged and take and assaulted in some way. Um, this is still happening in our age. It's not a far off and it happens a lot. Um, and then fornication, that's a general word for a lot of sexual immorality, um, lying and all the other things that go with it. <clears throat> The Bible is not an anti-sex book at all. It's not saying that sex is like inherently bad or evil or anything like that. But just like murder and sorcery and uh, sexual morality falls in that um, in ways that we um, are not honest in our relationships and in ways that we fail in those ways. And the fact that it's officially sanctioned, I think that's part of the theme of chapter nine, that It's enforced by armies, enforced by the law. Um, And certainly, um, we can see that in our world, that people with power seem to get away with a lot more when it comes to immorality, when it comes to taking advantage of people that are young, uh, taking advantage of children, taking advantage of um, the system that is offered to them um, because they are wealthy and in ways that the rest of us cannot do. Um, because of judgment. And then thefts. You know, I don't, again, I don't know if it's talking so much about petty theft or stealing because you're hungry. Here we're talking about the, the big kinds of thefts that happen, the ones that are perfectly legal, that are done carefully and calculatedly and with great concern for the legality. We see this official kind of immorality of murder, sorcery, fornication, and thefts all happening in this, in this judgment that's being poured out on the earth. Again, the judgment of God is not, um, is not like God cooking up misery for people. It's simply letting nature take its course, letting natural processes go to their ultimate conclusion and not halting them, not intervening in, with grace in those places. And this is a pretty bleak um, text because it seems like evil is winning. These evil forces have come out of nowhere, um, out of the river, and are now starting to do their worst. But we know that this is a book about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was born in the midst of a military occupation of his homeland. He would have known uh, from a young age uh, the perils of crossing 
soldiers the wrong way, of doing something that would offend them, make them angry, so that um, their violence would then be inflicted on the people. Most of the troops that were stationed in Galilee and Jerusalem, Judea, during the lifetime of Jesus were from Syria. They were not from Rome and Italy. Many of the leaders were, but we do have pretty good military records from that time that point that it was uh, Syrian Romans that um, occupied Palestine. And there was a lot of animosity there, racial tension from going way back with Syrians against uh, Jewish people in the first century. And so we add that dynamic to it. Jesus lived in a time that was volatile militarily. There were armies that were marching through his world and doing whatever they wanted to people, doing all these things that we see in this text. Um, he definitely um, he definitely had that narrative of the Syrians coming in uh, several hundred years before uh, with Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian general who desecrates the temple, sacrifices a pig in the, on the altar of God, desecrating the temple. And there was a revolt um, based on that with the Maccabeans, the Hammer family, um, Judas Maccabeus and his father Matthias uh, come and drive out Antiochus Epiphanes and his army in that revolt. And they rule for a while until they're overthrown. But th- these were the, the stories that Jesus would have lived in and known about. Um, so the Syrian-Judean tension that is existing in the life of Jesus is very real. And we can see it in these, these stories too, that Jesus um, is killed by Roman soldiers. So the early church had a lot of reflection on the military, um, both, its, both the good parts of it and that it shared, it sent um, the gospel all around the world. Soldiers were the first ones to believe in Jesus and become Christians, but also the threat that, that went with that. And these four evil things that always follow the military, murder, sorcery, fornication, and thefts, um, these seem to go with that. So again, the role of the church in today's world, which is very different than John's world, is still the same. We call people to repentance. We say, um, these are the four things, if you're in the military, you need to watch out for. These are the four things that we need to to um, warn each other about and try to put in safeguards so people are cared for and kept safe. But ultimately... All this doom and gloom from Revelation is that Jesus wins in the end. The triumph of God does happen in this world, even after horrific events that seem to take a third of our life. We think about the struggles of your life. We could divide it into thirds. I went to a hockey game the other night, and they divide those into thirds. First, the first uh, period, the second period, and the third period. We can divide our lives in, into that as well. Um, you know, as the riddle of the Sphinx says, what creature crawls on four legs in the morning, walks on two at midday, and walks on three legs in the afternoon? And the riddle, is the answer is the human. We crawl um, for the first time on all fours. We walk a little bit, and then we have a cane at the end. Um, and those, that progression of human life into those thirds um, may also be part of what this text is pointing at, that um, sometimes 
in the horrors of life and all the stuff that happens to us, we lose a third of our life. Some of you have lost a third of your life to all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't restore it in the end. That this section of your life, whatever third you're in, is the one where God's grace is going to pour into your life. And you'll have new life. Because that's what Jesus always does. He brings life out of death. Out of, he brings resurrection in places that have died. In places that have been taken from us. In places that we've lost. Jesus always brings that resurrecting power. And you will get that in this third of life, even though a third is gone. Amen. Where did Jesus learn his great preaching and sermons? From his mom. Song of Mary, page 50. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden, For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In a prayer for mission on 58, Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace. So clothe us in thy spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee, for the honor of thy name. Amen.